scripture reading is from the second chapter of Ephesians, the first ten verses. Hear the word of God. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We pray that our ears might be attuned to hear your voice that our eyes might see you speaking to us from the scriptures today. We pray, Lord, that your word might be our rule, your spirit, our teacher, your greater glory, our supreme concern. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, was I supposed to clip anything on here in the way of sound? I'm good to go here. Because if I'm going to be on the internet worldwide, <laughs> I want to know that I'm coming across well. Very well. It's good to be with you again. It's been 11 months since uh, my last visit with your church. I guess Michael is taking his vacation a month earlier this year. And although it's good to be with you, I think I'd rather be with him, considering that I guess he's in Yellowstone today or something like that. So. I expect he's having a good time, but I am delighted to be with you again. Uh, since my last visit with you, uh, it's been a momentous year in certain ways. My son was married, my uh, second of my three daughters moved to Ireland as a missionary, and then just uh, three weeks ago I accepted a call to become the lead pastor at uh, Cypress Ridge Presbyterian Church in Winter Haven, uh, Florida, and Lord willing, July 22, I'll be approved by the Southwest Florida Presbytery and officially begin my duties there, although this is the last Sunday that uh, I'm really available because I'm starting there next Sunday on a regular basis. So I'm in a major transition place in my life as well. Ephesians 2 is where we're going to be. You have in your bulletin a little scripture sheet that uh, was kindly inserted there that will help you follow along for our time in God's Word today. We're going to be focusing on the first six verses of this passage we've read, the first three verses of Ephesians 2 state plainly and profoundly the hopeless, helpless, lost, pitiful condition of humanity apart from the grace of Christ. Those three verses provide us, as it were, the dark frame into which God will paint the glorious picture of our redemption. Would you read them again with me? You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, 
indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And if you see what the apostle is doing here, you'll see that he's showing you just how bleak your condition is apart from Christ. With every phrase in these first three verses, the description gets darker and darker, and he ends by saying that we are by nature, by nature, children of wrath. Heard the story once of a woman who was a, a, a vegetarian and, a, and an animal rights activist, and uh, she had a dog that she decided to sort of bring along into her lifestyle and philosophy, and so she decided to train her dog into becoming a vegetarian. And so uh, for one week, she served her dog nothing but fresh fruits and vegetables, raw, in fact. And uh, the dog, as you might guess, didn't have a bite to eat all week. And after a week, the dog was becoming thin and, and quite nervous. The second week, she decided that, well, she would at least uh, consider cooking the food for the dog. So she began to cook the vegetables and serve them to her dog. Uh, but again, the dog just would sniff them and walk away. And finally, after two weeks of this, with her poor dog being on the brink of starvation, this woman relented and returned the Alpo to the bowl. Now, you hear that and you think how foolish of her. The lesson of that story, of course, is that you, you cannot change a dog's nature. You might get a dog to change dog foods by that kind of uh, pressure, but not to go from being a meat eater to being a vegetarian because dogs, as you know, are carnivorous by what? By nature. Very good. And you can't change a dog's nature. Jeremiah 13, 23 asks the question, can the Ethiopian change his skin or can the leopard change his spots? The answer, of course, is no. Such attempts as that are hopeless. There's no way, just as there is no way for a child of wrath to be anything other than a child of wrath. Helpless, hopeless is our condition. What's more, the passage says that you and I were dead in trespasses and sins. Dead. What hope does death allow? As long as someone is still alive, we, we hold out a glimmer of hope for that person, regardless of what the doctors may say. But at death, we understand it is all over. It's all over. I think of Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. As you recall the story in John chapter 11, their brother Lazarus was sick. And they had called for Jesus to come in hopes that he would come and lay hands upon him and pray for him and, and see him healed. But as you know, Jesus did not come quickly. And by the time he arrived, Lazarus had been dead four days. And Mary says to Jesus, Lord, if only you had come sooner. Perhaps my brother would still be alive. But now, but now, even Mary had no hope now. The physician can do nothing for the dead. And that is what God says we are spiritually by nature. And we're under wrath. I mean, everything is bad. Everything is hopeless. Everything is wrong until you come in chapter 2 of Ephesians to the fourth verse. We say it's often darkest before the dawn. But in this text, we don't go from the dark to the dawn. We go from the darkest of night right to the brightness of noonday. 
And it only takes two words to make the difference. Two words make all the difference. Read them in verse 4 where it says, But God. But God. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our transgressions made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You talk about a dramatic change in status. You talk about a promotion. You talk about a rags to riches story. We just went from being children of wrath to children of God, seated with Christ, reigning with him in the heavenlies. And the hinge on which this whole transformation swings is the two words there at the beginning of verse 4, but God. Those are words of hope, words of power, words of freedom. You think about a young man by the name of Joseph, raised a wealthy Hebrew, the favorite of his father, but then sold into Egyptian slavery, slandered into an Egyptian dungeon. And there he sits with essentially a life sentence upon his head. How would you have felt if you were Joseph? His was a situation without promise, there was nothing he could do about it. There was no hope for him. There was nothing for him to live for. But God spoke to Pharaoh in a dream. 400 years later, the descendants of this Joseph are now escaping Egypt, which had become a land of bondage for them, following this character by the name of Moses, when they ran upon this little chunk of real estate, this little piece of nature called the Red Sea. And here they are, a couple of million strong, with children and with herds, and they are blocked by a significant body of water. So let's call that the rock. And in addition to the rock, there was a hard place closing in rapidly behind them. They could hear the rumbling of the chariots of Pharaoh's army coming up behind them because the Egyptian king had changed his mind and decided he was going to pursue his slave force after all. And the people were stuck there in Exodus 14 thinking that they had come all this way just to die out there in the wilderness. And that's what they said to Moses in Exodus 14:11. They said to Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Well, that was sort of the reasonable thing to say at that point, right? They could see the Red Sea in front of them. They could hear the armies of Pharaoh coming up behind them. They knew there was no way out for them. They knew that they were doomed. But... An eight-year-old boy spoke to his parents after church one Sunday, telling them about this Sunday school class and what he had learned. And he said, boy, boy, was this story exciting. He, he exclaimed to his parents, Moses organized all the Hebrews into a resistance group, and they planned real carefully. And finally, they broke loose from their Egyptian slave masters, and they moved as fast as they could toward Canaan. They drove every vehicle they could get their hands on, jeeps and half-tracks and 16-wheelers, everything. But Pharaoh's army wouldn't give up. They tracked the Israelites down with radar. They exploded missiles all around them and shot at them from jet aircraft. And when Moses and his people reached the Red Sea, they thought they were finished. 
They saw the waters raging in front of them, and they saw the armies of Pharaoh coming up behind them. Suddenly, though, the Corps of Engineers came to the rescue, and they built a pontoon bridge over the Red Sea, and all the fugitives crossed over that bridge into freedom. Then, just as Pharaoh's forces were about to go across the bridge themselves, they used some dynamite to blow up the bridge, and then they lived happily ever after in the promised land. What a story, the eight-year-old said. Well, you can imagine his parents were a bit concerned about their little boy's overactive imagination, and they looked at him and they said, Son, is that really what they taught you in Sunday school? And he said, No, but if I told you what they told me, you'd never believe it. <laughs> but God, being rich in mercy, Years later, there would come a day in which the land of promise wasn't all that promising itself. All the miracles had been forgotten. Even the God of miracles himself had been forgotten. The precious law of God was now sitting on a shelf, and the land that he had given to his people was now devoted to the worship of idols, especially one named Baal. For decades, they had seen nothing but apostasy. King Amri had led the people into all kinds of wickedness, and now he had been succeeded on the throne of Israel by his even more son, their more wicked son, Ahab. 1 Kings 16.30, Ahab, the son of Amri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all the kings before him. It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, daughter of Ithbaal of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Boy, this was a bad time in Israel. The forces of darkness, the forces of evil were prevailing in government and in religion and in the media. There was no James Dobson there to rally the troops. There was no Christian coalition to oppose the king. There was no reason for optimism, no ground of any hope at all for the healing of the nation. But God, but God spoke to a man named Elijah the Tishbite, and revival came to the nation. Years later, the people fell away once again, and this time God gave them something even stronger for them to swallow. The Lord took them away into Babylon, and there... In Babylon, God called out a young man by the name of Daniel. Daniel raised up a standard for the people, and he showed by his life the power and the purity of God. But there came a day, as you well know, when Daniel's prayers became his condemnation, and Daniel was sentenced to a visit with the lions. And these were not friendly lions. These were not your Disney World kind of lions. These were wild animals accustomed to eating human flesh. And when they looked at Daniel, well, at least when they looked at you, they saw food. And Daniel was the main course for that evening. Daniel had no dream team searching Babylonian law looking for loopholes. There was no hope for a stay of execution. His number was up. It was all over for him. Doom was upon him, and nobody could do anything. But God, but God shut the mouth 
of the lions. You cannot turn your dog into a vegetarian, but God made rabbits out of the lions in Babylon. He can transform the nature of lions, and he can transform the nature of people as well. In Matthew or Mark chapter 5, we read a story of a poor woman who'd been suffering for many years from a condition of internal bleeding. In fact, it said 12 years she had dealt with this problem. And you can imagine having a disease that long, the weariness, the loss of energy, the inconvenience and the worry this condition had caused her. She had done everything she knew to do to deal with the problem. In Mark 5:26, we read that she had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all she had and was not helped at all but had rather grown worse. Can some of you relate to her story, to her experience with the medical community? For a dozen years or so, it seems, maybe you. Maybe you've suffered under a physical disability or ailment. Maybe you've suffered under an emotional cloud that has hung over your life. You have sought a cure from every angle you knew. You've lost money. You've lost time looking for a solution, and for all you're looking and all you're spending, you have only gotten worse. You can relate to this one. You get to a place where you just give up. You give up. You come to figure there is just no hope for me, and you may very well be right. There is no hope in doctors or psychiatry or religion or self-effort. Who are you going to call? Maybe your best answer for that is Dr. Kevorkian, but I think he's pretty much out of work nowadays, too. There is no hope for you anywhere but God. But God. Mark says this woman touched the garment of the Lord, and she was instantly made well. Now, Paul says our condition of sin is much like the condition of this woman. In fact, he says our condition is spiritual death. Spiritual death. What can you do about spiritual death? Well, you can do nothing. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love for us in Christ Jesus, made us alive. In that same fifth chapter of the Gospel of Mark, we read another but God story. It's about a man by the name of Jairus who had a daughter who had become very ill. And as a <clears throat> very desperate father, he went and found Jesus and pled with him that he might come and visit his daughter and, and heal her. But as Jesus was moving toward Jairus' house, the messenger showed up and said, Too late. Your daughter is dead. No need to bother the master anymore. Now that's what anyone would have said, I expect. But that... That very kind of word can be the voice of the enemy to us. The enemy says to us, despair, give up hope. There's nothing to be done now. Indeed, when they arrived at the man's house, the wailing had already begun. In verse 38, it says, they came to the house of the synagogue official, that's Jairus, and he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. When Jesus showed up, they expected him to join in all the weeping and the wailing. But, you know, Jesus had never learned how to behave at a funeral. He just never did. 
everyone that we read that Jesus attended sort of broke up. When Jesus comes to the house of Jairus, he acted like nothing serious had really gone on there. He told the folks not to worry, told them to stop their weeping, and when he did, the weeping turned to jeering instead. What kind of fool is this, this man who doesn't understand one of the great basic realities of life, that death is the end? I mean, you and I know that. You and I know that nothing can be done for one who has died. You and I know that there is no hope for a dead man. But if we think this way, we have forgotten God. There may be no hope anywhere else but God. But God. Maybe you have children. And those children are, are spiritually dead, as best you can tell. You have children living far from the kingdom of God. They haven't shown the slightest openness to spiritual things in 10, 20 years. Oh, you've sent them tracts. You've given them CDs. You buy them books. But nothing seems to make a difference. Nothing penetrates their thinking or their heart. There was once a mother like that many years ago by the name of Monica. She had given her only son to God. She had prayed that he would know and serve Christ. But instead, he just grew up to be an educated hedonist. He had a live-in girlfriend and was heavily into New Age religion. He had thoroughly rejected his mother's faith. But she continued to pray for her son, a son who could have been the poster boy for total depravity. And as she prayed, well, things only got worse. Her son was sent to a new assignment as a professor to the city of Milan in Italy, which I understand was sort of the mecca for the debased. So there he went, far away, entrapped in a lifestyle of self-reliance and false religion and great personal sensual indulgence. What odds are there of a man like that ever becoming a right-wing Bible thumper like his mother? There was no hope of that, no hope at all. But God, but God, being rich in mercy, even when we were dead in our trespasses. This great God one day led this curious college professor to a church just to hear the preaching of a famous preacher named Ambrose because he was curious concerning the power of his oratory. Just to hear how the man could move an audience, he went. And there at that church, he heard more than a speech. He heard a word that sounded to him strangely like home. And he was moved to pick up the Bible, which happened, as it were, to fall open to Romans 13, 13, a verse which exposed this man's own corruption. It said this, let us behave properly as in the day not in carousing or drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity or sensuality, not in strife or jealousy. And then he came to the punchline of the passage, verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh with regard to its lust. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, this man whose name was Augustine, Saint Augustine became the famous bishop of Hippo, said of that moment, quote, 
No further would I read, nor did I need, for instantly as the sentence ended, by a light, as it were, of security infused into my heart, all the gloom of doubt vanished away. End quote. But God. But God. I think of a woman named Norma. Norma grew up with nothing. The only time she felt worth anything was when she was in the arms of a sexual lover, and so she tried to stay there as much as she could. She went after anything that would relieve the pain of her spiritual emptiness and her moral guilt. And in 1973, pregnant for the second time, Norma changed her name to Jane. And as Jane rose, she took on the Texas law that prohibited her from terminating the life of her preborn child. Her court case won at the national level. And then Norma sold herself to the pro-abortion movement. She fought with pro-lifers. She gave herself over to lesbianism and became hooked on drugs. She, too, was a poster child for total depravity. What hope? What hope could you give a person like Norma? She was the personification of our national sins. There was no light in her life. There was nothing about which to be encouraged. There was no hope for Norma. No hope. None. Oh, oh. But God. But God. And in his providence, she took a job at an abortion clinic that happened to be right next door to the National Office of Operation Rescue and its leader, Flip Benham. And out of that office came to visit her a little girl who befriended her and then one day invited her to church. And Norma took her up on the offer and went to the church, pastored by the head of Operation Rescue, and there she heard of Christ and his grace, turned from her sin and embraced him as Savior, and her life was changed. Some of you have heard that story. Many of you, I'm sure, have not. I'm going to tell you a story now of that I know you've all heard. It's about a fellow I like to call H.D. His story goes like this. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. You ever heard that story? Ever studied it? pretty powerful, isn't it? I mean, it is when you, when you think about it. It's about a guy who takes a major tumble. He crashes. He's totaled. And where does he look for help? Well, Humpty Dumpty, apparently, uh, he goes right to the top. He puts in a call to the White House, and he must have been a very important guy because all the king's resources were sent to his aid. All, all of them, all the horses, all the men assigned to this one mission. The greatest minds, the strongest bodies of the nation came to Humpty Dumpty's rescue, and they could do nothing, nothing at all. And that's exactly what the government and science and psychology and education and religion can do for men and women who are spiritually dead. Nothing. 
You look at Ephesians 2 again. Paul doesn't transition from the no hope section of, the, of this chapter to the sure hope section by saying, but you. It wasn't what the Ephesians did that made the difference. It isn't what you do that makes the difference. He, he doesn't transition by saying, but I. It wasn't Paul's powerful ministry in their life that was the key factor. He doesn't say, but we. Paul and all his friends together couldn't make this change. He says, but God. And the point is that God and God alone can handle the problems of human sin. Man can't do it. You can't do it. I can't do it. In Matthew 19, Jesus tells his disciples there in verse 24, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It goes on, when the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, then who can be saved? You see, they figured that it was easier to be saved if you were a rich man. You had more resources with which to do good things. Furthermore, the fact that you had wealth was probably a good indicator that you were one of God's favorites. That's how they saw it. So they wondered, if not the rich, then who? Who can be saved? Now get this answer, verse 26. Looking at them, Jesus said to them, With people this is impossible, but with God... All things are possible. Now you can find that kind of statement at various places throughout the scriptures. These but God statements. With man it is impossible, but God. Psalm 73, Asaph writes this, verse 26. My flesh, my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. But God. Another story. Hezekiah, king of Judah was a man of rare spiritual insight. You know, it's pretty rare to see a political ruler who understands where real strength comes from. But Hezekiah, he got it. He figured it out. And in 2 Chronicles 32, we read of how the king of Assyria was after Hezekiah and his kingdom. The Assyrian armies had descended upon Jerusalem. This was an army that was on a roll. They had wiped out army after army as they had taken city after city on their march south, and now they laid siege to Jerusalem, and King Hezekiah did everything an intelligent general could to prepare for this invasion. But there was only so much you could do against an army as powerful as that of the Assyrians. His intelligence department was probably recommending that he run up the white flag, that he surrender, but instead Hezekiah gathered his people, and he said this to them. Chapter 32 of 2 Chronicles 32, or 2 Chronicles 32, verse 7. He says, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be dismayed because of the king of Assyria, nor because of all the horde that is with him. For the one who is with us is greater than those who are with them. With him is only an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people relied on the words of Hezekiah king of Judah. Oh, is that awesome or what? All the king's horses and all the king's men were not sufficient for this challenge, but Hezekiah said we only need one God, just one God. The situation for Jerusalem in this story was hopeless, really hopeless, but God. Verse 21, the Lord sent an angel who destroyed every mighty warrior and commander and officer in the camp of the king of Assyria. 
So he returned in shame to his own land, and when he entered the temple of his God, some of his own children killed him with their sword. And then you look at the next four words in verse 22. So the Lord saved. So the Lord saved. And that's really all I want you to understand this morning. It's the Lord who saves. It's only the Lord who saves. So it is to him that we give our thanks. It is in him that we place our trust. Jeremiah 17, 5, thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord, for he will be like a bush in the desert. And that describes maybe some of you this morning. You're like a bush in the desert. You're thirsting and you're thirsting, but nothing will quench that thirst. Your problem is that you are looking to human resources to meet a need only God can meet. Listen to Jeremiah 17, 7 now. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord, for he will be like a tree planted by the water. Why downcast, O oh my soul? Put your hope in God. The next time you're talking to your spouse and discussing how bleak things are, how bad things are for your kids, your marriage, your finances, your nation, you look at each other and you say, but God, but God, when you look at where your child is and you feel despair start to climb all over you, then shake yourself and yell out, but God, when your marriages seem utterly, utterly bankrupt and you can't agree on anything and you feel like you've given and given and given all that you can give, there's no hope of improvement, then remember our text and you say, but God. You remember that what is impossible with men is no problem with him. What is it with you? What are the temptations you're facing that seem overwhelming to you, that seem hopeless to you? Are you saying, you know, I can't put up with that husband, with that kid, with that boss, even one more day? Or maybe you're saying to yourself, I, I don't seem to be able, I, I can't break my internet pornography habit, I can't get off these cigarettes, I can't put down my remote control. I can't put down my fork. I mean, is there really something facing you where you know the right thing to do, but you think you can't do it? May I remind you, Christian friend, that there was a time when you were by nature a child of wrath. When you were a walking dead man, when you were a slave to your sin, and there was nothing you could do about those things either. But God, rich in mercy, great in love, he made you alive. So, as you assess your situation, don't forget the way that Hezekiah did his math. One God is greater than the hordes of the Assyrians, and he's greater than anything you face as well. Well, some of you will hear this word today, and maybe you'll think, well, that's nice for you, preacher, but I can't look to God for solutions, not the way I've been living. God won't have anything to do with me. Well, my friend, you have to read all the passage. Look at it again. Ephesians 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, mercy, that's for those who don't deserve what they're getting, because of his great love with which he loved us, 
Even when we were dead in our transgressions, God doesn't wait until you bring yourself to some state of spiritual life. Oh, no. God knows you would never do it without him. Mercy, love is for those even now living in a state of sin. So the good news of Jesus, it's for sinners. What did we sing earlier? Jesus, what a friend for sinners. And if you know that you qualify, then you apply to the mercy of Christ. Others of you, you have a different reason for not calling on the Lord. Read one of those little snippets in Reader's Digest one time written by a travel agent who said uh, she was a travel agent in Los Angeles. She got a call one day from a guy who was inquiring about uh, flights from Los Angeles to Honolulu. And so she uh, told him about the flights, quoted the price, and asked him, shall I book you a flight? And he said, no, no, not yet. I want to check first with Amtrak. <laughs> with Amtrak. Some of you have said no to Jesus. Some of you have said wait to Jesus in order to seek out solutions that will not work. And you've done it because of cost. You said that coming to Jesus may cost you some pleasures that you know he doesn't approve of. You see that coming to Jesus may cost you some sin, sin that is very dear to you. And I'm here to tell you that you're confused on two points. First of all, Jesus doesn't ask you to give him anything of real value. He's not asking for your treasure. He only demands that when you come to him, you put aside your pride. Yes, he may ask you to give up a few things, but when you do, you learn, as Paul did, that compared to knowing Christ, those things are as rubbish. And secondly, you're confused in thinking that there is any other solution. I mean, I suppose it is possible to take a train going west from Los Angeles, but you won't go very far like that, and you sure won't make it to Hawaii. Just so, there's no answer to the problems you face, no answer to the spiritual need that you have, no solution to the problem of sin except up those two words. Say them with me. But God. So let's close and speak to the God of the impossible. Let's pray. And as we bow in prayer, I want you to think first of yourself. Where in your life are you feeling hopeless? and helpless. And will you commit yourself now to look to heaven and say to yourself, but God, where in your life are you looking to other things, other people for your help? Maybe to religion, or to hustle, or to medicine? Will you instead, will you instead say to yourself, but God, and look to him? And then let's think of others that you know, those you know and love who are, in, who are maybe where the Israelites were, between a rock and a hard place, in a very desperate situation this morning. And trusting in God, looking to him, let's call out for them in prayer. Lord, you know our need, you know our extremity. 
You know our hopelessness, our helplessness apart from you. But we would turn our attention, we would turn our, our focus away from all the other things that promise to be our solutions, and we would look clearly and squarely at you, the God who can raise the dead. And Lord, we wouldn't look to the king and his resources. We wouldn't look to the brilliant people of the earth or the mighty people of the earth. We would look to you even now. And we would say, Lord Almighty, come and be our deliverer. Deliver us from spiritual death. Deliver us from blindness, from fear, from worry. Deliver our children. Deliver our loved ones from their spiritual predicaments and their needs. God, have mercy on us in Christ and lift us up to reign with him in the heavenly places. We thank you, Lord, that in your grace you call us by the gospel to put our faith, simple faith in Jesus, and we have eternal life. We have heaven to come. But we pray that you increase our faith, that we might experience some measure of heaven now in the peace and confidence that, let rest, that, that is ours when we rest in you and trust in you. And so we offer ourselves and invite your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Since it is God who is our Savior, it is appropriate that we direct our thanksgivings to him. What's our closing hymn there, Zach? What's the number? 98. Now thank we all our God. I believe we stand.